gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. When we consider the glory of God, the glory of God is worthy to be known not only here in Lynchburg, but truly around the world. And as we looked last week in Luke chapter 1 in the prayer of Zechariah, you can see that expansive vision of God's glory that even Zechariah proclaimed that God has visited his people and he's going to visit his people again. In Luke chapter 1 there at the end, Zechariah worships because God is about to visit his people for the second time. The first time he recalls that imagery of Sinai where God descended on fire and power and majesty and visited the Israelites. And then through covenant, he comes down off of Sinai and dwells in the tabernacle. He dwells among his people. So we have visitation, dwelling through covenant. And God promised throughout the Old Testament, through the law, through the prophets, that once again he would come and visit his people. But this second visit would be in a final and more complete way, something that all of the Old Testament pointed to, but then realized in this second visitation of God. The prophesied coming of a forerunner would signal the imminence of God's coming. And this is why Zechariah is so excited. Because the prophecy is that, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John, who we'd later know to be John the Baptist. And this John is the forerunner of this second visitation of God. And so Zechariah, he's excited to have a boy. But even more than that, excited that God is coming. Now, what shape would that take? What would this second visitation look like? Well, Zechariah knows a little bit. That is driven by verse 78 of Luke 1, the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. He's going to give light. He's going to be a, a, a peacemaker, one who will guide our footsteps into peace. This is the love of God coming to bring light and peace. And when we come to the end of Luke chapter 1, we're kind of left with, a, okay, now what? And then Luke chapter 2 describes the coming of this great visitation. And it comes exactly how we would not expect into a backwater town named Bethlehem. Now, what does the incarnation, God becoming flesh, what does this visitation into our world actually tell us about Jesus and why does it matter? Like, why does, why does God coming in the flesh matter to us, brother and sister? What is its significance? What does this tell us about the very nature of Christ? Because historically, the nature of Christ, who he is in his person, is the most warred over aspect of our faith. We see it in the first few centuries of the church and then really a strong resurgence in the last 150 years, even the last 200 years, as there have been attacks against the nature of Christ. This morning, I'd like to examine two Christmas texts that help us with these concerns, with these questions of the nature of Christ and who He is. Two Christmas texts that later on, I'll give you a little bit of homework because I hope you'll read both of them this Christmas. The first one is here, the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 2. Now, the Gospel of Luke, this is the good doctor. He is one of the companions of Paul. 
Luke and Acts are both written as defenses to help Paul as he is standing trial. So this is during the time period of the Acts when this book was written. And Luke has a very specific agenda in mind, but let's hold off on that for a moment. Let's read Luke chapter 2, verse 7. So here we have the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God, and here's how His coming is described. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Awkward silence. As I read this, we have so romanticized this story, I think, that we actually gloss over the fact of how boring and ordinary this description is of Yahweh's arrival. It is, it is literally just an ordinary description of she had a baby, laid him in a wood box, and just there was no place for them in the end. Very, very matter of fact. No frills, no fancy. But who is this? Who is this dude that we see in Luke chapter 2? Well, let's read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 7. Let's read, let's get the whole, the whole text here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was some, no place for them in the inn." So verse 1 to verse 7, what we have are, is, is really an account of some real geopolitics of the time. Caesar Augustus is on the throne. We have Quirinius, who's governor. Oh, and by the way, they, 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 pass, they pass a tax bill. Not really. He just decreed there would be taxes. And really, this, this is a story about paying your taxes. Because they have to relocate down to Bethlehem in order to be registered so he can be counted for the census so that Joseph and the family can be taxed accordingly. So we have real geopolitics, a local governor, real people in a real situation. We can go to Bethlehem today. You can see the ruins of the first, second century town in different places. They travel across a real landscape. They come to a small little town and a very real birth is described. Nothing miraculous about this birth in particular. There are some events around it that are, of course, miraculous. But the actual reading of verse 1 through 7 is just very simple, very ordinary, set in a very real world. But who is this one that's been laid in a manger? Is this not Yahweh himself, the one who is visiting his people? This Yahweh who in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 is described as high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And they are calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook and the house was filled with smoke. 
Is not this one who has been laid in a manger in a very ordinary little town, is this not the one whom Daniel spoke of in Daniel 7, verse 9 through 10? The ancient of days, his clothing white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. Thousands, thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. In both cases, the Old Testament writer is describing God in terms of absolute omnipotence, absolute power, omnipotent, potent in power in every omni category, no exception. He is absolutely amazing and majestic to look at, that the heavens cannot hold back their silence. They cry out and say, holy, holy, holy. And this Yahweh comes to visit his people into a very ordinary situation. Why does Luke describe it like this? Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, emphasizes the humanity of Christ. That this one who came was a man, an actual man, a historical figure who actually lived and breathed in a real world. This is why Luke calls him often the Son of Man, which is a messianic title from the Old Testament, but it's a messianic title that, that identifies with mankind. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that this Jesus who was born in a manger experienced birth, growth, exhaustion, sleep, hunger. He got thirsty. He got angry without sin. Sorrow. He actually shed physical tears. Compassion, love, joy. He experienced temptation, yet without sin. He prayed. He experienced hot and cold and the raindrops on his forehead as they crossed the Sea of Galilee multiple times. This Jesus came into a real world. And as we look at Luke chapter 2 and we remember the glories of the story and everything that it represents, do not miss out on the fact that what we see is a very human Messiah, human, like you and like me, flesh and blood, yet without sin. Please now turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. Luke emphasizes the humanity of Christ. It's a wonderful Christmas text, Luke chapter 2. Here is the second Christmas text about the incarnation, the arrival of Messiah into this world. Whereas Luke emphasizes the humanity of Christ, John emphasizes the divinity of Christ. That you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in Him, you might have eternal life. This is the thesis of John. But note that both of these gospel writers tell the Christmas story and they both begin with the Christmas story and both describe the birth of Jesus. So let's look at John 1.14. John 1.14. Because Luke 2 says, this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, born to Mary in a very ordinary world. John 1.14. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. 
the Word, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, majestic God became flesh. The economy of words that John uses to create such an incredible punch of truth is actually stunning. Literally, logos, sarks, egeneto. If you were to translate it literally, it just says, word, flesh, became. It's very, very brief, but loaded with meaning. Word, flesh, became. Now you may say, but what is the word? Well, let's read. Verse 1 down to verse 18. Let's read the whole passage. Let's get a sense of what this text is saying. John 1, verse 1 down to 18. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Still no name. Still no name here. We're getting a lot of description. You're starting to fill in the blank, but there's no name that has been given yet. Verse 14, now this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now we know this word is a son of Yahweh, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is the John of Zechariah of Luke 1, the forerunner, a cousin of the person who's going to come, a real historical individual who proclaimed and actually identified this individual as the Lamb of God, but still no name. Who is this word? For from all, for from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. First visitation, Sinai, the covenant, the greatest of the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver. For the law was given through Moses. Now we have a name. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the second visitation. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but He, Jesus, has made Him known. Who is this Word? This is Jesus, very Jesus. 
Now let's go back here because in John 1.1, as we look at the divinity of Christ and his nature, in John 1.1, literally, and in the Greek, it's almost poetic. So again, I'm going to read this for you because it says, N-R-K, hen halagos, kai halagos, hen proston theon, kai theos hen halagos. That in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Now, who is this word? It says that he was the word. Now, in the Old Testament, in terms of biblical theology, the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is a favorite phrase. The word of the Lord came. The, Lord, the word of the Lord was given. The word of the Lord brings healing. The word of the Lord is seen as power. By the word of the Lord, creation came into existence. In Greek thought, the logos, the word, is the ordering mind, the logic, the reason, literally the science of the universe, the mind that orders all things. So in the beginning, at the very beginning, the archaic was, was. Now in the Greek, when we have this little word, it almost exclusively, especially in the Gospel of John, denotes existence. It does not mean that it came into being. Matter of fact, there's another Greek word for that, something that comes into being. So in the beginning was, he already was, self-existing, great I am, this word was and always was. He never became, he always just was. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, what did he say when Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. I was. I am and will be. This logos who was from the beginning and always was, was with God fellowship in the presence of God. We get hints of the Trinity here. Now, if he stopped there, we might say, see, he was with God, but he was not God. But here we actually have John saying, in the beginning was the Word. He existed in the beginning, always has. He is the ordering reason and logic of the universe. And this reasoning, logic, ordering of the universe is not just some ambiguous mind. It's a person. He's with. He has fellowship. He has relationship. And he's not just with God. This Word was God. He is God. There's no doubt about who this word is. The word is God. The word is creator. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life. He is the source of existence. He's the source of life. He does not depend on anything for life. He is life itself. All things have life from him. In theology, we call this the aseity of God. This term comes from the Latin phrase ase, meaning from or by himself. So he's by himself. Bavink describes it this way. He says that God is whatever he is by his own self 
and for his own self. He just is. Aseity is viewed as one of the first of the attributes. All attributes being derived from this one, for this is what it means truly to be God, the uncreated, self-existing one that is dependent upon nothing outside of himself. He has sufficient resources within himself for all that he is and all that he does. And in this way, God's lordship is absolute and independent of anything he has created. This word is God, this word is creator, this word is self-existent, this word is personal, this word is light. He came as the light of men. Now, if you're the Old Testament scholar and the Jew, you would say that just rings with Old Testament imagery because the prophecy of the Messiah is one who's going to give light. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, he's going to bring and give light In John's context, it is light against sin, against evil, against the evils of this world. And it says that he came to bear witness, so sorry, he comes and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome him. He's unconquerable. The word is light, personal, powerful, self-existent, in him with life creator of all things, and absolutely unconquerable. Now John came to bear witness of this light. And we see that this word is God, very God, light, power, and transcendence. And then this is one of the most stunning transitions in all of Scripture. This unbelievable transcendent image of God And then verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word was, different Greek word now, became. He took on something that was not him before. It's not that God changed in his essence. We believe God is unchangeable. But he clothed himself in a way that he had never done before where the transcendent, immutable, powerful creator, God of the universe becomes flesh. What is this event of Yahweh becoming flesh? It is And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The irony of contrast of who this baby is. But Luke 2 showing that he is a real man. And John 1 saying this man is also truly God. This is Jesus Christ, Son of God, God, very God. Now, one of the common arguments that sometimes people will bring out, Muslims love to bring this out, but not only them, lots of people in our culture, they will say, but Jesus himself never claimed to be God. Uh, A lot of evangelicals say, well, you're right, but I actually disagree with that. A lot of evangelicals said, you're right, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, No, I would say... Jesus absolutely claimed to be God to Jewish ears. We in the West, products of 
the Western Roman Empire. Thinking as Gentiles, we read it and we don't see clearly. But if you're a Jew and you hear Jesus speaking, there is no question about what he's claiming to be. And even for argument's sake, I would point you to John 5.18. Listen to what John 5.18 says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. If you ask the Jew, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Absolutely. That's why we crucified him. Did Jesus ever claim to be Yahweh, the great I am? Without question. That is why we tried to stone him on multiple occasions. There is no question that scriptures and that Jesus himself claimed again and again, I am he who was promised. I am God in the flesh. Luke 2, man. John 1, God. John 1, 14, God in the flesh. Here's a suggestion for you. Christmas Eve, read Luke 2. Christmas morning, read John 1. Meditate on the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation. God in the flesh, Jesus, fully man, fully God. And Satan knows the significance of these realities. So his efforts have been to create confusion and disruption by corrupting our understanding of who Christ is. So if we look at these two passages and we see these show the natures of Christ, we also need to understand that church history, much of church history has been to the defense of the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Church councils throughout the beginning of specifically the first millennium, from the birth of Christ all the way up to really the 800s, we have all these church councils. Now, and you say, what, what is a church council? A church council, actually, we see its precedent in Acts chapter 15, where they are having a dis disruption and disagreement over the nature of salvation. What is required to be saved? And so what do they do? The leaders of the church get together. They pour over God's word in prayer. They come to a conclusion and say, this is what God's word is saying. And then they codify that and say, yes, we affirm this is a key aspect of doctrine. So in the course of Acts 15, what do Gentiles have to do to be saved? Do they have to keep the law? They come together, they pray, they study God's word, and they walk away and they say, no, salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But let us be holy out of our salvation. In the early first, second, and third century, attacks rose greatly against both the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. Because if you can take down one of them, it totally destroys what Christ came to do. It destroys the cross. It destroys the resurrection. If you lose the humanity and the divinity of Christ, it destroys your hope in heaven. This is not just theological wranglings for wranglings sake. At it is the core of the gospel. There arose in the early church docetism, which believed that well, Jesus is not fully human. He really kind of came in the appearance of a human, but he wasn't really human. 
He just had a facade of flesh. Eutyches, another man theologian, came and said, you know what? I think that he's he's a little bit God and a little bit man, and we have this kind of mixed nature. And this mixed nature is not quite God, not quite man. It's a third entity entirely. You have Apollinarianism. Another man who came and said, well, well, Jesus was fully man, but when he became man, his divine soul replaced his human soul. So he has a human body, but a godly soul. How does the church respond to these things? Or maybe Gnosticism. They came along and said, you know what, Jesus is not fully God. He's more like a, a created being. Or, or Arian, Arianism. Or Arius, again, a church leader, someone inside. By the way, all these people were inside the church. They were inside the church. And Arius came along and said, there was once when he was not. It was kind of a ringing thing. It sounds better in the Greek. But there was once when he was not. In other words, Jesus was a created being, not fully God. So the church, this is rocking the church, the Council of Nicaea in 325, they come together, and this is an excerpt of what they concluded. Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, very God from very God. That's what we see in John 1, isn't it? Came down and was made flesh, was made human, suffered, and rose again the third day. Sounds like the humanity of Luke 2. Later on, as heresy continued to be rife among the church, they gathered again in 451, some 400 years after the time of Christ, at the Council of Chalcedon. And they said, you know what? Jesus is not just a little bit of, little bit of God, a little bit of human, some mixed nature. Rather, he is fully man and fully God. And we call this the hypostatic union. The upostasis, the the being, his subsistence is equally two natures in a divine mystery. We don't fully understand it. But here's what they clarified at Chalcedon, which is absolutely critical. That we have this Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Four key things to describe the nature of Christ in his divinity and humanity. Without confusion. That Jesus Christ is not what you get when you mix blue and yellow together and end up with green. He's not a little bit of this, a third thing, a mixing of the natures. He is fully God and fully man. He is without change, the second statement. In assuming human flesh, the Logos did not cease to be what it had always been. He remains God. It's without division. The two natures of Christ do not represent a split in the divine person. Jesus is not half God, half man. He's fully God, fully man. And then lastly, without separation. The union of the human and divine in the person of Christ is a real organic union, not simply a moral or relational image. Now you say, hey, I was with you with Luke 2 to John 1, but now you lost me. The church has warred over this because they saw it as critical to the gospel. 
You should go read the Council of Nicaea. You should go read the Council of Chalcedon and see their full statements. You can Google it and find it online. But this war did not just stop here at the early church. Islam contends that Jesus is just a man. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus is a created being and not fully God. There is nothing new under the sun. Satan is devious. He is not original. The same heresies keep just circulating. 19th and 20th century liberalism that came through the German school of critical thought and infiltrated our seminaries and our churches. Questionings of the historical Jesus. Is the virgin birth? Was it real? The denial of miracles. Jesus was just a good teacher, just a man, but not God. Or he's God, he's this metaphysical idea, but he's not real. And if you take away some of the elements like the virgin birth and whatnot, it doesn't really matter. And so the church responded in the 1920s to the 1950s, which what is popularly called the fundamental movement, and it was the statement of the fundamentals are critical. You can't do away with these. But like any movement, sometimes it swings into excess, and then the fundamentalist movement actually became known for not focusing on the fundamentals and focusing on secondary issues. But this battle is rife, and it just comes again and again. Satanic assaults on the nature of Christ continue. But John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came to Sinai and through covenant comes to dwell among the Israelites. In the second visitation, God becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then through a second covenant that he is going to broker, wants to dwell just not in your physical presence, but wants to come and actually live within your very being. And he cannot do this if he is not fully man and fully God. So how does this impact our salvation? Good question. We're going to talk about that next week. On Christmas Eve, what did God and his humanity and God and his divinity accomplish through Christ, in Christ, fully man, fully God, at the cross? But as we end this morning... What does this hypostatic union teach us? The union of the flesh and the divine. This teaches us about a God who stoops, who enters our world and became flesh to save sinners. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and we end with this. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Form. Speaks to his intrinsic essence. He was, he is, in the form of God. It's a very unique Greek word. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself of what? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
So he's intrinsically God and he takes on the intrinsic nature of the servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. In no way did it say that God emptied himself of his divinity. He was God, is God. And he empties himself of what? Of his rights and his glory to assume flesh, servant, humanity. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ made himself of no reputation precisely by taking on a human nature. He emptied himself not by pouring out his deity, but rather by adding to himself full and true humanity. His was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. If he actually surrendered or gave up his divine attributes, then he would cease to be God. And that is not what Scripture shows. But rather, he humbled himself, became obedient to death. Those are both humanly realities. Humility unto death. Death is a human experience and reality. But as a result of this, he's given the name above every name. This is divine. So that every knee should bow. Only the divine should be bowed and worshipped. He is Lord and he is exalted. The word became flesh. God stoops to humanity. And then he stoops to death. This is the full expression of the incarnation. God stooping to humanity. And then in this humanity, stooping to death. Christmas is God coming in the flesh, fully man, fully God, to die for sinners. And the practical, I mean, even just one practical takeaway, have this mind among yourselves. It's not about me. It's not about my time, my stuff. And it's tragic that in the time of the year, Christmas, when we are most selfish about that parking spot or about that person that cut us off or the presents or whatever it may be or my time, family, time off, vacation, people, ah. The time when we are most selfish is actually proclaiming the event that best showcases God's selflessness. Have this mind among you that God in the flesh did at the incarnation. And then next week at Christmas Eve, let us gather, let us celebrate and see why the incarnation of the flesh and the divine upon these things hang our salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what Jesus came to do, if he is not fully God and fully man, everything falls apart. In Luke 2, the word was lied and laid in a manger. In John 1, we see this word was God, with God, God, very God. On one ordinary night, the word became flesh. And may we never cease to give worship or forget the significance of Christmas. We ask all these things by the power of your holy name, Jesus Christ, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds and give us hearts of worship that exalt the name of Jesus. 
And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.